Hello and welcome to another episode, episode 27 of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. I cannot say enough positive things about my wonderful guest today. Annika Scott is uh, just lighting the world uh, up with her amazing playing and uh, advocating for all things related to historical instrument performance. Uh, she's just uh, a brilliant voice, a brilliant person, uh, obviously a fantastic musician. Um, anybody that heard her performance at IHS 54 in Kingsville, Texas can certainly speak to that. But if you weren't able to get to that performance, she's got uh, dozens and dozens of videos online, numerous recordings. Um, she's played with, uh, you know, d- more than I can uh, list in this brief intro, more uh, groups than I can say, uh, chamber groups, orchestras as a soloist. Um, she's got a new book out about historical horns, and uh, I-, I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation today with Annika Scott. Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I suppose let's start. Um, what brings you to Brisbane? Well, um, I'm here playing with a group called the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra. Um, it, for, for me, it's always a great pleasure to come back to Australia. I, I started working here several years ago. Um, I started coming over to do work with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Um, and the Australian Chamber Orchestra quite often does projects either where, I mean, intrinsically that is a modern orchestra, but quite often the the string players from that orchestra put gut strings on and get the period bows out, and then people like I get invited along. And we've done sort of Borjak and Brahms and Mozart and Haydn with um, Australian Chamber Orchestra. But there's also a, a very specialist group here called the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra, um, which basically says what it does on the tin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I normally come over and do a couple of projects a year with them. So we're doing a big Mozart project at the moment. Um, and for me, it's, it's a particular pleasure to come over to Australia. When they when I first started being asked to come back here, um, what the musicians here didn't realise is actually um, my father's from Melbourne. And I've got, I've got, I've got Australian. I've, I'm a bit of a mongrel. I've got Australian nationality. So the first time I got asked to work here, um, I rather naively wrote to ACO and said, oh, you'll be delighted to know I'm actually an Australian citizen, so you're not going to have to do visas and everything, not realising that um, I'm both kind of in the system and not in the system. Oh. So I, ca- I caused loads of headaches for them because I didn't have, you know, there were certain sort of tax numbers I didn't have and everything like that. But for me, it's, it's, it's always nice. It's always nice coming over here. There's a um, part of my heritage, part of my sensibility. I, li- I lived here when I was a child. So uh, there's a lot of Australian culture and a lot of um, the Australian mindset, which I really recognize. And so it always it always makes me feel when I'm over here that a bit of me makes a bit more sense. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 it's it's so um, yeah, so I'm over here for a couple of weeks playing a lot of Mozart, which is great fun. Oh, that's lovely. And so did you did you go to Brisbane directly from the the United States, or did you get oh. to go back home for a little bit? So, so um, yeah, this has been a bit typical. Uh, regrettably, not. Um, I had a wonderful week uh, with IHS fifty four in Texas, and um, uh, I had to. Um, I 
what was great about IHS this year for me was that I was able to be there for the whole time because mm-hmm. I've 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 been to a couple of the IHS events before Ghent and London, and uh, you know these have been more or less on home turf. So with both Kent and London, I I was there for very very sadly I was there really just for my segment of my participation, mm-hmm. and then I had to get back and do how it dovetails with other projects. Um, and so Texas was wonderful because I was able to be there for the whole time, which meant I could just hang out and listen to what everybody else was doing and mm-hmm. and get get to experience the full uh, full glory of that. But I I stayed in Texas as long as I possibly could do, and then flew back. Arrived I think it was Monday morning in London and went straight into rehearsals with um, the brass ensemble I play with, the Prince Regent's Band. Mm-hmm which is a 19th century period instrument, brass chamber music group. And it was um, it was a little daunting because I got back on the Monday morning and we had a live performance on BBC Radio 3 to promote a concert we had on the Wednesday night. And then the Thursday morning I left and came to Australia. <laughs> so I've done a week in Texas. I did the three days back home with Prince Regent's band and then straight out to Australia. And then when I finish Australia, I'll be going straight back into something in the UK. So it's basically me trying to eke out as much time as I can do, as I can do in each place. You know, it's just stay, stay until the bitter end and then quickly on to the next thing. So so I've, I've done a fair few time zones in the last however many weeks. Yeah. My goodness. So how do, do you have any tricks for dealing with the jet lag and just sort of mm. adjusting to the, the next time zone? Oh yes, yeah. I I I really. Um, first, firstly, you are just where you are. Mm-hmm. I and and actually, this is I. This is um, a, a quite a good metaphor. I, I was talking to. Um, there's a flautist out here, Sally Walker, who's been doing a lot of research into um, musicians who are playing historical instruments and doing all the different sort of mm-hmm. time zones, shall we say, in our musical history, and. Um, one of the things I found myself saying to her was, I'm I'm always playing whatever instrument I have in my hand. Mm-hmm. If I was playing Baroque horn yesterday and I've got to play romantic rotary horn tomorrow and I'm playing classical horn today, it is whatever you're doing right here, right now. You don't think about what you're doing yesterday. You don't think about what you've got to do tomorrow. You just you are just doing what you're doing right now. And that's exactly the same thing with time zones. I don't I I when I, when I'm here, I'm 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 trying not to think about oh you know what time is it back in London or oh my what time was it this time last week you know it, forget about it you are right here right now so very very much try and establish everything to say that you are in Brisbane and it's coming up to nine o'clock in the morning um, so that that's the first thing be very 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 um, rigorous about establishing you that you're right here right now doing whatever you are. That's the first thing. Um, the other thing is, even if you're not hungry, <laughs> eat meals at the time you it, the time it is. And mm-hmm. uh, the classic with that is, especially you get to late at night and you're tired and you're not really hungry because your body is telling you it's something mm-hmm. else. But make sure you have meals at the right meal time, even if it's just a symbolic gesture that right. I'm pretending this is dinner. Otherwise, you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, absolute ravenous, and and your 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 gut and your digestive system—that's always the last thing to ca- catch up with 
um, time zones. And the final thing, and this is this is actually a really good thing um, right right here at the moment, is get outside and be mm. be in daylight, be in sunlight, um, be in the dusk, be in the dawn, and and just take all those signals that you can from your surroundings as to what time zone it is. So. Right. Yeah, that, 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 that's how I manage manage things. <laughs> that's great advice. I remember reading an interview, I think it was with Herman Bauman, you know, years oh, ago. Yeah. He, he said something to the effect of, you know, this is a tough life on a plane, off a plane, and, you know, you get somewhere and you got a rehearsal in an hour. And he basically said something like, well, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I, you know, <laughs> I can just do it. And, you know, the, many of us are not so fortunate. So it's, it, you know, even for me... Every, where I live, it's very humid. That there's a lot of moisture. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of moisture in the air. So wherever I travel, always feels more dry to me. And it, you know, it's it's always like, oh, it's not as not as uh, humid here uh, wherever as wherever I am. So it's just one of those things. Everybody's got their little adjustments they have to. Yeah. Do. But uh, that's, that's quite interesting. No, that's that's excellent advice. Um, <laughs> so I. I Without getting too deep into the the weeds, if you don't want to, but I, I thought it mm -hmm. might be nice for. I think by this point, most listeners would be familiar with you, if not from your recordings and your book, and you know all of the projects you've been doing. Your fantastic performance at IHS fifty four, but you. you know, talk a little bit about maybe your musical background and you know how you came up as a young horn player, and you know it's it's one of those things like. You still play modern horn, I'm sure, and, and yeah. Isaac, Isaac said he did too, but it's almost like a branching path. You know, at some point, there was a decision where you were like, okay, this mm. is, I'm going to go down this path for a while, and you really have to dedicate yourself to, you know, your craft and what it is that you're going to gonna be doing. And so maybe talk us through a little bit about how, oh. you, how you got into the, the uh, historic instrument performance. Well, um, for me, um, I think... Part of the background to it was um, I grew up in Birmingham in the UK, which um, in an era when, for example, Simon Rattle was the principal conductor of the City mm. of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra at the time. So a really, um, in hindsight, I was very fortunate to be growing up in a city that had a really, really vibrant musical life um, and huge opportunities for young musicians. So um my background when I was going off to music college in London was I had just come up through a local city music service, but um, one that had an awful lot of stuff going on. So, for example, um, one of the local choirs was a group called Ex Cathedra, conducted by um, a chap called Jeffrey Skidmore, and they were doing a lot of Baroque music. And we, we had, for example, we had um, a modern instrument Baroque ensemble in the youth system. So I got to play Brandenburgs and water music oh and things like this uh, on, on, on modern instruments. But mm -hmm. it was, it was a, it was an ensemble that was set up to give the kids a, a taste of Baroque music making. So I was exposed to a um, very, very high level of Baroque music making. And it was very much just, just, Oh, and in the way that you could play in the jazz ensemble or you I could see. play in the Baroque, group or the or the there was a brass ensemble or a brass band or a sitar ensemble you know it was just it was just a this is this is a musical genre and um uh we were just given exposure to all of this um but for, for me the 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 tipping point was just before i went to just before i was doing my music college auditions and 
I, at that stage, I, I knew I wanted to be involved in music um, because I had just come up through a city youth scheme. Um, I hadn't done a private music school. I hadn't done like the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. I hadn't done all sort of um, the junior departments of the conservatoires here. I didn't have any idea whether my aspirations were, <laughs> were feasible or not. I, I, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed what I did, but um, I had no idea sort of where I was in terms of um, auditioning for one of the high level colleges. So I, I was sort of thinking about the various options. And in the UK, one of the things which a lot of your listeners might not be aware of is we tend to have a little bit of a, um, a crossroads when people go off to do their tertiary studies because we've got the university music departments and we've got conservatoires. And whilst you can go to a conservatoire and have a, a, a very academic, a good academic training and similarly you can go to a university and get lots of performance opportunities you tend to sort of have a bit of a choice at 18 as to which direction you want to go in hmm. um, and when I was preparing for my music college auditions my horn teacher at the time picked up uh, you know that have you come across the term valvectomy yes when you yeah, yeah, pick, yeah. yeah it's when yeah. you pick up and it's when you pick up a a, a, a bust up old horn and you take the valves off and my my horn teacher was you know handy with a blowtorch and had picked up um an old battered old piston horn turned it into natural horn and it was a few weeks before my music college audition and said I think you might be interested in this and neither of us really knew how the thing worked I had to work it out for myself but I I kind of really went oh oh I there was something about the challenge of it and having to work it out and I found myself a few weeks later going to my music college auditions going, oh, yeah, I, can I do this from the get-go? Um, and part of the reason I chose to go to the Royal Academy of Music, um, John Wallace, the trumpet player, was in charge of the department at the time. And they they sort of said, OK, if you, you come here, you can do it from the start. Mm. And so I, when I arrived in London, I sort of, as soon as my uh, feet hit the floor, it was like, yeah, I... I'm really interested in this. I want to do this. Um, and one of the things that I quite often find when I'm talking to people who might not be so aware of the sort of whole historically informed performance world is, of course, the classical natural horn is just one instrument in a whole array of instruments I play. We don't sort of have this binary of modern horn and natural horn. We've got, as horn players, we've just got such a remarkable history of different designs of horns, different techniques of playing. Um, in, in a way, it can be quite intimidating because if you want to get very granular about this, you end up kind of needing a different horn and a different technique for every decade and every, you know, every different city. Um, but I, I really gravitated towards uh, playing in this style. Um, for, for a number of reasons. I, I, li I like the variety of it, um, but also I, I found I liked the, I was finding as a student that the sense of exploration um, was greatly attractive to me. So that, that, that's what sort of brought me towards this world. And towards the end of my time studying in London, I, I was very aware of a, one of the challenges, which is for young horn players wanting to specialize in this this area um, getting training getting performance opportunities can be 
um, very challenging. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're in a department, if you're in a conservatoire or a university which has a, a good um, historical um, department, us horn players we start with our Mozart's, Haydn, and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And if you're good, and if you're um, getting on well with it, then we go back to the Baroque and also forward to the Romantic. Mm-hmm. Whilst many of your contemporaries, if you're starting on the trumpet or the trombone, you start earlier mm-hmm. and then you go into classical and then you go into Romantic. So it can be that sometimes horn players aren't getting the opportunity to cut their teeth on the sort of repertoire you need to know mm-hmm. professionally. Um so it can be a challenge to get those skills, especially in comparison to your modern contemporaries who by the time they finish their studies, you know, it would be very rare for you not to have played your Mahlers, your Bruckners, right. your Beethovens, all this sort of stuff. So that was why I went to study first in France and then to study in Holland was just to get a little bit more training and experience. Um, so you, ha- you have to be... You have to be really looking for performance experiences at that point in your life. And that was sort of what brought me into the professional environment, really. Oh, that's that's a fantastic story. And for, yeah, from what I understand, France and, and the Netherlands have a very vibrant and robust, you know, uh, historical performance, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scene going on there. Mm-hmm. And very much um, I, where I studied in France was um, this remarkable scheme that was started by the Orchestra Champs-Élysées, um, whose conductor is Philippe Herriweger. And um, it was very much a scheme that was started to, it was a sort of um, classical and romantic youth orchestra. And it gave, to be quite frank, it gave me the opportunity to have a safe environment where I could play all the Beethoven symphonies and and have that opportunity to, you know, make mistakes and go for things, mm-hmm. which is something that as soon as you're in the professional environment, you don't have that opportunity. So th- these were invaluable opportunities for me. That's that's awesome. Um, so it, a bit of a lighter question, I suppose. <laughs> what, yeah. what is What is the most bizarre instrument you've ever played? <laughs> I, I I could wager a guess, but I want to I want to know what what. what um, okay, okay. It's um, so oh, um, I've got an alto Ophiclide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an alto Ophiclide, um, and this has been loaned to be my um, Jeff Miller, who's our tuba serpent Ophiclide player in the Prince Regent's band. Uh, one of the jokes we have with the Prince Regent's band is uh, we quite often end up buying things which are is, is the wrong size. And it's, 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 it's a bit like internet shopping for clothes. You know, mm-hmm. you, you something arrives and it doesn't fit. And if you've got a good mate that it's more their thing, you pass it right. on to them. Um, so we've, we've had a few things with PRB where, because during the 19th century, you have these families of brass instruments, which were exactly that made in different sizes. Sometimes what happens is I'll get a message from somebody from PRB going, oh, I've done it again. I bought something. It's your size, not mine. <laughs> and but 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 Jeff, Jeff knew what he was getting and he got this off Alto Ophiclide because he's got these dreams of us um with Richard Thomas who plays Keyed Bugle. Jeff has got this idea of us playing um key uh, we, we're trying to work out whether it's going to be a keyed bugle ensemble or an Ophiclide ensemble and there's a bit of an argument of that nomenclature. 
Um, so I think auto offer client, I've, I've not fathomed it out, but th- that's that's one of the bizarre things. And I've I've got on the way coming to me. Thank you to Jonathan Ring up in um, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He spotted this and knew what it was. And um, it's a Roth Corno. Okay. Which is this is the instrument that um, the Hindemith Auto Outhorn Sonata. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that Hindemith had a Roth Corno. Imagine it's sort of, um, it's a forward facing, I don't want to say tenor horn. It's, it's, it's a very, very bizarre instrument, but it's, it, it almost looks like a cartoon sort of flugelhorny-ish sort of forward facing instrument. Oh my goodness. Um, and so, so, so that is very likely what Hindemith had in mind for the Outhorn Sonata. It's a, it's a, it's an E flat um sort of sax horn flugel horn sort of instrument um that's on the way to me now so i'm looking forward to doing more of the hintermit on that or probably my corner de terrassi which that was gonna is, be my guess uh, <laughs> yeah that so that, so for for people who are not familiar with the corner de terrassi it's a fascinating instrument in that i i have to be really clear about this we do not know really what a corno de terrassi is we've got lots of very very tantalizing bits of information that mm. can help us extrapolate what it could be but the corno de terrassi is an instrument that bach writes um a handful of cantatas for um so we've got i think it's fewer than six works where bach writes in his manuscript mm-hmm. corno de terrassi but if you look at these few works and then look at other works that Bach has written, there are uh, uh, several, we're, we're talking, I think at my last count, a, a fair few dozen mm-hmm. which follow the same pattern. So it's a, a single instrument, often doubling the soprano line. Mm-hmm. Um, often it would work very well in A or B flat. It's very high, it's very chromatic. And it's got a slide um, on it. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, well, that, a trombone-ish. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. So Tarasi is like a push-pull. So um, the, the the name corner to Tarasi literally will mean slide horn. Mm-hmm. But um, none appear to survive. We we can tell that Bach stops writing for this instrument around the time that Gottfried Riker dies. So... The, the likelihood is that there was just one person playing it um, and Bach rewrites some of these cantatas after Riker dies. So the instrument that I have is the um, brainchild of a horn player, Olivier Poucan, who um, lives in Switzerland, very, very fine horn player. And it's the results of a collaboration between him and Egger. And what they did was they looked at the music Bach wrote and they looked at the instruments that would have been around in Leipzig at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's a very beautiful hypothesis. But I'm very, I'm very much at pains to say that this is a hypothesis. It's a it's an elegant one, but really we don't know what Bach had in mind. But it's a very, very high um A or B flat um soprano horn stroke trombone <laughs> and and it, it it it's um it's really enjoyable learning 
a new technique, a bit like learning to play keyed brass, learning to play something with a slide. Mm-hmm. I, I've got new, I've got uh, a lot of admiration for our, our trombone colleagues because that the, the Tarasi has got like one and a half slide positions, not seven. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating, and yeah, and the the recordings you did with organ are just just lovely. So oh, it's yeah. thank you, thank you. That yeah. that was that was um, uh, an extremely um, lockdown. Uh, project because it was it was done totally remotely to the organist we we were uh not in the same building <laughs> when that got recorded and it, it it is very almost um symbolic of the whole covid lockdown experience that album mm-hmm. yeah yeah and well and speaking of uh projects you've got another one right that's uh corno not corona uh video oh yes yeah. do you want to yes. uh, talk a little bit about that project well, um, the the background the background to this was, I mean, uh, um, actually, one of the things I just want to say is one of the things which was quite nice about the IHS fifty fourth event that's just happened. This was the first in person um, meeting of the International Horn Society since the pandemic hit, and one of the things which I found really quite profound was the number of conversations I had with um, such a wide range of horn players at this event. I mean, it's, 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 it, it speaks volumes about the strength of our community that we had so, the, the kids that were there, the, you know, the students who are seriously studying in the instrument, the, the, the huge number of amateur players who come along to these events, plus those of us who are coming from the professional arena. Um, and one of the things that I found very sobering was conversations with um, people about how the last two years had affected them and the the sort of both the sense of loss of community, but also how the community kept going together through virtual means. There was a, a lovely gentleman who came and spoke to me and he had his phone in his hand and he said, this is my internet. This is mm-hmm. how, you know, he said, I don't have, a, I don't have a computer. This is how I kept in touch with people was mm-hmm. through my phone. And I had so many interesting conversations with people talking about their experience of the last two years and how we kept this sense of continuity and kept the sense of community. Um, and for me, I, found myself doing all sorts of things basically to keep myself <laughs> try and keep myself sane um but also to try and keep myself i suppose accountable mm. so um uh, keeping on playing was um a, a, a major thing that a lot of us had to somehow fathom how we were going to do and and part of this came off a project by a very good colleague of mine emily worthington who is um, one of the artistic directors and clarinet player with this harmony music ensemble, Boxwood and Brass, that I play with. And um, Emily started doing this thing where she would um, uh, uh, multi-track. She would she would film herself playing the piano and clarinet, and and I thought, oh, that's a nice thing to do. And so I, the first thing I did was actually. Um, a, a slow, a, one of the 19th century transcriptions of the slow movement of Mozart clarinet concerto. So it was almost tag teaming with Emily. She had done something, so I did a clarinet piece and various Boxwood people did various things. And I think it was because I was so, so bored and wanting to do things to keep me intellectually and also 
playing-wise stimulated. So I started doing this series of um, fortnightly videos where I would mm-hmm. choose a piece of music and an instrument. Um, and there, was cer- there were certain um, parameters. The biggest one being I had to be able to play the piano part. <laughs> so that, 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 immediately, that, that immediately sort of um, put a threshold on what I was capable mm-hmm. of doing. But I was looking for short, interesting pieces where there was a very nice marriage between the instrument and the piece of music. So some sort of um, story behind why these two go so well together. So each fortnight I would do a piece, and but I would also do a companion video to it mm-hmm. in which I would, ex- I would explain what I was doing, I would share sources. So for example, um, there were some pieces where I, I was um, trying to emulate early recordings, especially vocal recordings, mm-hmm. or pieces where I'd say, okay, um, I remember there was one where I was doing um, uh, the Carabini first sonata, I was mm-hmm. using preludes and things like this. So each performance has this companion video which explains what's going on and which I hope will encourage people to explore these sources and come up with their own interpretations. I would be delighted if people find these sources um, either inspiration or also look to these sources and come back and go, actually, I think there's a different way we can interpret these sources. So I th- that was what was keeping me um, um Kept kept me uh, my face in shape. Kept my head um, picking over ideas. It also, quite frankly, meant that the instruments weren't um, the instruments were in circulation. Because mm-hmm. this is one of the things, of course, when you're working professionally, you're getting these instruments out and you're making sure that they're working. Right, right. So I I spent that that was one of the things I did during lockdown. And then um, in the UK, we have this quite remarkable. Um, organization called the Royal Philharmonic Society. And the Royal Philharmonic Society is an organization that goes back um, quite a few uh, quite a few centuries. In fact, um, they are the organization that commissioned the ninth Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. So Ignaz Moscheles, who was um, a pianist and part of Beethoven's circle. Um, also, Moscheles was a very good friend of Felix Mendelssohn. Moscheles was a mover and shaker in London during the um, early 19th century. And he knew that Beethoven really could do with a bit of assistance at that time and persuaded the Royal Philharmonic Society to basically fund the Ninth Symphony. Um, so it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those very... Um, uh, historical organizations and they do a lot to support musicians and music making and like a lot of these big institutions during the pandemic they were very aware of what musicians were going through Mm -hmm. and they had funding which this was earmarked for um, if you could show that there was something that you had done during the, the, the lockdowns, if there was a project you had done during the lockdowns and you wanted to develop it further, mm-hmm. um, you could apply for this funding. So I said, well, look, I've been doing all these videos. Um, I want to do something, but with a better pianist. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do something with a better pianist. And I want to do something 
the the things I did during lockdown were um, all these. We have such a great repertoire. We have mm-hmm. such a wonderful repertoire as horn players, and I hope that the pieces I did during lockdown were some of the more unusual pieces, mm-hmm. um, pieces that could point horn players in the direction of finding their own repertoire. If you look at what I've been doing, it'll give you pointers as to how you can discover new music, new repertoire that can make your own um, mm-hmm. niche. But the things I wanted to do with this uh, Royal Philharmonic Society funding are the big blockbusters, Mm -hmm. the pieces which for all of us are the mainstays of our repertoire. So we're looking at the Mozart Fourth Horn Concerto, Beethoven Sonata, Schumann Adagio Allegro, uh, Glasnost Reverie. Um, Oh, the Sanson Morse de Concert. Mm. On a on, on an omnitonic horn. Oh wow! Um, yeah, um, uh, Villanelle, Duquesse Villanelle, um, and then it gets really interesting. Um, the the Poulenc Elegy mm-hmm. and the Hindemith, um, the first movement of Hindemith Sonata, and the last two pieces actually point. So I wanted to do something that would give us all a cross section of our our repertoire. So from Mozart through to um, uh, Poulenc. So it shows it shows how our instrument developed. Um, but also the other thing was this was a project I did in 2021 and it got delayed because of continual lockdowns and problems mm-hmm. that we had in the UK. But the other thing was 2021 was the 100th anniversary of Dennis Brain. Mm. So all these pieces have a connection with him and very... Um, Massive shout out to the Royal Academy of Music for the Hindemith. They let me use his Alexander from, yes. Nice. So the Hindemith recording is on Dennis Brain's Alexander, which was, wow, that that, that was quite something, getting to play that instrument. So it, the, the, the story behind these videos is the history of the horn, but also in the companion videos, I'm talking about Dennis Brain and his legacy and, everything to do with that so that that's a big project that's being um rolled out at the moment well that that's phenomenal yeah and i i encourage anybody that doesn't know about this project go back and start with the early videos because they're, <laughs> they're really cool and i mean like a lot Thank of people you. i was i was sitting around with not a lot to do either and trying to think of things to do and i was watching your videos and you know it my wife makes fun of me for this. I'm not great at observing things sometimes. It took me a while to figure <laughs> out it was the same person playing piano as playing the horn. And then once I got the joke, it made it even better because you would look, you would look, the pianist would look at you for cues. And I'm like, oh, how about that? She's <laughs> so uh, it, they're, they're really great. So. Thank you. Thank you. One, one of the nice things was during the pandemic, um, I was having basso continuo lessons. Mm. Um, I'd had a few basso continuo lessons off a, a colleague of mine pre-pandemic. And like, um, like you know, the day all the uh, the day we were told, right, you're, you're going nowhere. I dropped her a line and said, are you teaching online? And she went, we're all teaching online mm-hmm. now. And um, it, it was it was really nice for me to um, it it's always really nice I think to do anything that expands your your hinterlands as a musician and and it was very very interesting up uh, you know working working to improve my keyboard skills during that 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 point in time but I, I can tell you you're, you're 
you weren't the only one who didn't didn't clock that. And it's it's interesting that every so often I get somebody going, "I've just clocked." <laughs> that's what's going. You know, I I I, I got t- I got ticked off by a friend of mine who said, "You you know you you haven't credited the pianist." <laughs> said, Look a bit funny. closer. Look yeah. a bit closer. But yeah, there, I mean, and and then you know to now see it come to the fruition of being funded, and you know the the last I saw you playing Adagio and Allegro on a little funny looking horn. <laughs> yeah, it was, that it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I. You might be tired of answering this question, but I think it would be mm-hmm. interesting to our to our listeners. Is I'm sure you've mastered it by this point. Of as you said earlier at the at the beginning of the recording, um, whatever you're playing, that's what you're playing. But for for those who maybe aren't as accustomed to you know picking up a different horn or picking up a different mouthpiece and just being ready to go, how how did you get to the point? To where you can just do that and feel at home and feel centered and be musical and all of those things playing so many different kinds of instruments oh excellent question um um it one thing i would say is it does get easier it really does get easier um i sometimes think when i talk to horn players getting into playing all these instruments um we can we can slightly forget how long it took us to learn things in the first place. So I think actually in a funny way, getting back to what I just said about having basso continue lessons and trying to improve my skills as a pianist, um, you have to remember that you're coming to these instruments quite often with a, a, a high, a high musical awareness because of what you've already done. Mm -hmm. And therefore you get frustrated because you're judging yourself on this body of knowledge that you have. And instead of getting frustrated about why can't I do this? I think it's quite good for us to reflect on, well, this shows the skills and the knowledge that I've acquired thus far. Um, So I know that, one of the things I found when I've been having basso continuo lessons, um, that the thing the thing which I enjoy about that is it's it's a mixture of um, one of the things my teacher was aware when I was having these lessons was I've sat in orchestras playing this type of harmony for twenty plus years I know how things are supposed to sound mm-hmm. um, so I can do a fair bit of it by ear um, but I get frustrated when I I can't physically. Mm-hmm do it but it, so what i'm saying is there is that that we speak a lot about embodied knowledge mm-hmm. the the knowledge that our bodies have learned from doing things and so when we start to learn a new skill a new instrument or something like that we can be quite frustrated why can't i do this you know i i sh-, you know and we forget that it actually took us quite a while to learn this and now we're taking that knowledge and applying it to something which is similar but different so Firstly, the frustration is a thing. It's a recognized thing. I, I see so many people experience, so so don't worry about it. Um, yeah, that's the first thing. I, I sometimes quite like thinking about it in terms of language. Um, the thing which I know about playing many different instruments is actually it started to get a bit easier when it wasn't a binary. When when I was first starting out and I was playing the modern horn and, and the classical natural horn, mm-hmm. it was either it was black or white. It was either on, you know, it's that one or that one. And that was a bit difficult. 
and then I started to play baroque horn as well and then I started to do the 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 early valve horns and then it starts to be a bit where you're playing sort of several instruments and I think this this idea of it being like languages I I I have to just flag up I'm terrible at languages I'm really really awful at languages but when when you have your sort of mother tongue and the your foreign language that's a bit like sort of when you're playing the modern horn and starting to play the classical horn Mm. but then you might start to learn another language and you start to see how they relate to one another so for example um um I'm trying to learn Portuguese at the moment because I've it's a very long story but I've got Portuguese citizenship and um, that this all to do with sort of old family and things like this. Okay. But um, um, it, one of the things I'm liking about learning Portuguese is I've got a bit of Spanish and a bit of mm. French and, this, and you go, Oh, Oh, so I can see that this word comes from there, but that word comes from the other. And so the more languages you learn, the, the sort of more fluent you get, but you start to see the parallels and you start to see how these things relate to one another. And I know from speaking to friends of mine who are uh, polyglots that they say, oh, you know, the, the more languages you learn, they all feed into one another and they all strengthen one another and things like this. So I would say that um, when you're just playing two instruments, it can be difficult and you 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 do start to get fluency the more work you put in it the more you speak these instruments and things like this but i i found that when i started to play more and more instruments they all fed into one another so rather than being confusing i feel that they all strengthen my knowledge of one another um but the the other thing is you just touched upon it in your question um i I know that different people do this in different ways. Personally, I find it really useful to play the mouthpieces of the different instruments. Mm. So, for example, I think the most extreme thing will be that when I am playing, uh, you know, the various um, uh, Eastern European alt horns or, or the sax horns or things like this, I will play the mouthpieces of these instruments rather than having an adapter and playing mm-hmm. some sort of modern French horn mouthpiece. Um, and the reason for this is um, there's multiple reasons. Um, firstly, it gives so much, the feedback from the instrument is so much better. You're playing a mouthpiece that's appropriate to that instrument. I can I can get the feedback from that instrument. But also I actually find the physicality of it, the fact that on my lips, I, f- I, I feel that this is not just a generic mouthpiece I play across the whole range. It means that the interface between myself and the instrument is much more immediate. I'm I'm really aware that, okay, you know, I I, I picked up the wrong mouthpiece the other day and I, I remember putting it into my classical natural horn. As soon as it I put it on my face, it's like, oh, I've it's a Baroque mouthpiece. All right, go change. So um so I know I I know different people do it in different ways and for very good reasons. Everybody has their particular um thing that they have to do as part of their horn playing. But personally, I find that for me, playing an appropriate mouthpiece for each instrument is not a distraction. It's not a further confusion. It actually helps me interact with the instrument in in uh, a way that facilitates what I want to do. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. And and Annika, I know you've got rehearsal soon, but before we <laughs> before we jump <laughs> we've got enough time. I, yeah, I'm enjoying I, this. It's nice I, to chat to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And well, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention you've got a a book, a volume one about historic yep. porn. So for those that uh, would be interested in you know dipping their toe or more into that water, it, you know your your book seems like a, a must have. I, it's on my list. I've got a list a mile long of books I need. To <laughs> I, I've got you know I've got uh, Jeff. Snedeker's book as a as an ebook and I've, I've oh, not, I've, I've not managed is, yes. to read it all yet, but I know it's it's on my list as is yours. And just to make sure I get the name right, Historical Horns Handbook, Volume One. Natural yeah, so Horn the, and introduction. The, 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 yeah. the the idea behind this, um, it, it kind of came from um, again talking about the horn community. Um, I I found that there were certain questions I kept on being asked. And like uh, one of the things that the book starts with is, you know, talking about getting hold of an instrument and and the different options that we have. Because again, we we have there's so many roads into exploring our wonderful history, and I found myself getting a lot of the same questions. So I started putting together PDFs and and also my work with my own students um, and. The big driver behind this book, which I would say is a big driver behind a lot of the work I do, is um, I wanted to share sources with people. I know that if I uh, if people start looking at the old books on how to play the horn, we've got such such a great pedagogical history. Mm-hmm. But at first, if if you're not used to working with your dopras, your galets, your uh, all these sort of uh, all those at first it can be a little uh, bit of a barrier mm-hmm. how to how to get into this sort of um, um, information so the idea behind the book was to actually introduce sources introduce how to work with these mm-hmm. um, so what I'm doing is I'm sharing a lot of the old ways of learning the horn which I find um really strengthened my own practice but the idea being that um, a student of the horn who comes to my book I'm really hoping that then from there they will go and look at your uh, because a lot of these sources are now really free freely available thanks to the internet Mm -hmm. Um, so the first book is very much uh, explaining the basics of natural horn playing explaining how to play all the all the notes and and all the crooks and things like that the second volume is all scoped out I just need to um, (laughs) I just need to sort of finalize it and everything um, and then the the other volumes again they're all scoped out. I just need to sit down and write them. But they're they're the idea again is the same sort of methodology. Here's the sources. Here's you know twenty pages of this person on how to do this. Here's twenty pages of this. And so with all of them, the hope is that um, people who want to get into our our wonderful instrument. I, I would be really happy if in, in a few years' time there are other people writing similar things, using the same sources, and just uh, who, who take the battle and run with this because there is so much, so much out there for us to explore. Well, you've, sur- you've certainly gone a long way to sort of, you know, not just opening the, the gates, but like, you know, <laughs> paving a way for people to, to get into this stuff. So it's, it's, uh, we owe you a big thank you. Uh, debt. So thank you oh, so much. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. But uh, yeah, it, um, 
I, I do have to ask though, you seem, you know, you're, you're incredibly busy and you've got all of these other things and music going on. So wh where, where do you find time to, to be, you know, to be relaxed and, you know, what do you do for your leisure time? What, uh, what do you do when you're not playing uh, a brass instrument? Oh, well, the, the, the whole thing is, um, um, it, it's, it's, it's funny. My, uh, I'm just, just thinking my, uh, uh my, my father is um, a, a legal academic, and I remember it was a big joke that um, that there's an entry about him in, in some some who's who thing, and he 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 put down as his his leisure act, activity sort of being more of the same. And I, I, regret, <laughs> I regrettably think I regrettably think I'm, I'm the same thing. I, you know, um, if, for for example, one one of the things that um, one of the things doing when when the pandemic first happened, um, one of the things I found myself doing. You you mentioned Jeff Snedeker's wonderful book. If people don't know it, he's recently written a book about um, the French school of horn playing in the nineteenth mm. century, and I thoroughly recommend it. Um, one of the things I found myself doing at the beginning of the pandemic was um, reading lots of um, horn biographies. Mm. I'd picked up over the years. Um, the first one I read was, um, oh, um, Frank Downs, who's a, a name that might not mean thing to people. He was um, a horn player. Um, he Actually, I'll tell you what, he was a, 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 um, a colleague of Dennis Brain, same generation. Okay. They, they, were, they were in the uh, same um, um, Air Force band together. And actually, I it, they, these were sort of books that I'd, picked up over the years and never really sat down and read from cover to cover. I found myself reading a lot of these during the pandemic. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that we were going through this really, really weird time. And Frank Downs was writing about post-World War II and mm. the UK um, have the Blitz and the, you know, the things that he had seen as being part of um, a, a military musician, and it was it was really wonderful to not to put too fine a point on it. Read about other musicians going through times of upheaval. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I I tend to find that there's so much about you know, the history of our instrument that I gravitate towards, and it just gives us an idea about where we are today. But in in answer to your question about what I what I find myself doing. I'm, I'm lucky that I'm one of those people who loves traveling. Mm. So um, this morning I, I got up and I went for a run along the river here in Brisbane. And then I went down to the botanical gardens, which has got a, um, a big market on this morning. So I, I love traveling. I love exploring the world and, and those sort of things are what I find myself doing when I don't have a horn in my hand. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like you found the perfect, you know, way to, to do all of those things and travel and play. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm very thankful for you uh, taking some time to, to speak with me. Today. My pleasure.